0: The Right Hook Podcast with the Mitsubishi Commercial Range: Pajero Executive, Pajero Commercial, Outlander Business, and New L200,
1: all with a leading five-year commercial warranty. Mitsubishi Motors.ie. It's Thursday, and this is George Hook with the Right Hook on News Talk. Here's a digest of some of the items we had on the program today. The recent Austrian presidential election was uh, uh, nail-biting, and in fact, the loser lost by uh, less than 0.6 percent of the vote. The interesting thing was, of course, the the loser was Norbert Hofer. Of the Freedom Party, which has some Nazi affiliations. Well, what's happening across Europe in terms of the rise of the right? Alison Smale is the New York Times Berlin Bureau Chief, joins me now. Alison, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you for having me. Um, there's been a rise of the right, though, across Europe for you know the, for the entire 20th century, hasn't there? I mean, <laughs> Europe has a has a history of of it. So when something happens like this, we should be aware that it's happened before, no?
2: Certainly, we should be aware that it's happened before. Obviously, in the case of Germany and Austria and Italy, and then the whole continent, with pretty disastrous effect in the 20th century. Um, what we saw at the weekend in Austria was the closest yet to the far-right gaining, um, getting elected in a democratic election to a real position of power. Um, the Freedom Party in Austria, which is the party to which Norbert Hofer belongs, is differs a little bit from something like UKIP or the alternative for Germany that has just been raising up here in the last two, three years in Germany. The Freedom Party dates back to the 50s. It was founded by ex-Nazis and Teuton nationalists. And for the last 30 years, it has played quite a big part in Austrian politics, partly because it had a very charismatic leader, Jörg Haider, from 1986 until his death in 2008 in a car crash, and partly because it has been around for such a long time so that it has hit themes that have become familiar with the wave of migrants that we saw last year in Europe. It has become common for the right wing to play on popular fears of crime committed by these new outsiders, these people that we don't know, the people that we're afraid of in their parlance. Um, This is a theme that the Freedom Party has been hitting for decades in Austria. So when it came time for the first round of the presidential elections last month, Basically, what happened in Austria was that voters gave the establishment parties of the center left and center right a really big kick. Um, they said absolutely not. Norbert Hofer, who was not very well known, got 35% of the vote in the first round, finishing far ahead of the second finisher and Alexander van der Bellen, a former Green Party leader. In Sunday's election, it was just a runoff between those two. It could barely have been closer. There has not been a presidential election in post-1945 Austria where we had to wait overnight for the mail-in ballots to be counted the next day.
1: All right. But Alison, what, there are a number of issues when you, you have to look at Austria, I think, slightly differently, almost including Germany. I mean, um, we, 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 we had a president in Austria, Kurt Waldheim, and we saw pictures of him, uh, in Wehrmacht, uh, uniforms. And, and there were suggestions about atrocities during World War II. Uh, if we look at Anschluss, um, before the start of the World War, the Austrians uh, pretty uniformly thought it was a great idea. And in fact, in their actions uh, in, in World War Two and towards the Jewish population of Austria and so on, they, they were pretty uh, comfortable being part of uh, the Nazi operation. Now, if you look at the rest of Europe, in Denmark, Uh, you have a coalition government in which uh, a right-wing party is very strong in it. In Portugal, you have another coalition government in which a right-wing party is very strong in it. There is a reaction, whether we like it or not, liberal or otherwise, to the wave of immigrants that is pouring towards Europe.
2: Um, I mean, I think the migrant issue is definitely one issue, but I think on a day where we hear that Donald Trump has got the number of delegates he needs to get the nomination at the Republican Convention. We also need to be mindful of how unsettling globalization is proving in many parts of the world, in addition to the 2008 financial crisis. And people are really afraid that their world is changing in ways that they can't control. They're clinging, it seems, to candidates who seem to offer them simple answers, or at least to say, we understand your pain, and the elites, the people who have ruled you for decades, are just not as sensitive to this. But Alison, that
1: may may actually be right. You know, I mean, people may actually... Absolutely, it may
2: well be right. And I think that in Austria, for instance, the government has now said, we understand that this was a protest, we've heard you, we're going to do something about it, whether they do or not. Whether this prevents a further rise in right-wing sentiment is really unclear, but I completely agree that it is on the rise across the continent,
1: except in Ireland, and and which is really Bravo. that's in- <laughs> no, well, no, really interesting. That. Um, as a listener reminds me, we have more migrants per capita than the USA currently, And new migrants, that is. We haven't got a right-wing government, but interestingly, what we have is we have the same kick that the centre-left, centre-right got in Austria. We don't have a government in the true sense of the word, which is a majority government. Uh, with us, it's the rise of the far left. But in a way, it almost doesn't matter whether it's the far left or the far right, they are both now getting elected because of what you put your finger on is that ordinary, God-fearing, law-abiding people don't think that their country, their government, is for them.
2: Yes, I think there's a tremendous estrangement between what are perceived to be out-of-touch government elites with, in some European countries, the added complaint that Brussels has much too much power, that it is not a force for the benefit of most people. I mean, this disregards, I think, the, narr- the counter-narrative, which is that Europe is much better off united, that while indeed there may be you know, endless examples of petty bureaucratic re- regulations that are issued by bureaucrats in Brussels, by and large, an awful lot of countries have benefited from the development funds that come with membership of the European Union, and just by the very notion of being able to travel um, across borders with ease in Europe. Ryanair, that you were mentioning in the previous uh, segment, I mean, it's, its whole foundation is that we are able to travel freely and cheaply um, across Europe.
1: But, but Alison, and by the way, my guest is Alison Smale, who's the Berlin Bureau Chief at the New York Times. Um, but you see, it, Britain now, who would have thought it? Britain is now going to have a referendum on whether it leaves Europe or not. The suggestion is that if, if, if Britain left, it will give courage to another of, a number of other countries who were thinking of leaving anyway. So, the The idea you may well say, like I drive 160 miles on a regular basis to Cork, and it takes me half the amount of time it used to take me because the roads are better. All these sort of good things, but then some days you think, well, maybe we're not better
2: off. Yeah, I mean, the grass is always greener, particularly if we're in a time of of questioning and change. But I think that. Across Europe, there are sort of sustained efforts. If you actually look, there's an interesting chart on NYTimes.com. I might as well give it a plug here. Um, And the striking thing about it is, yes, um, there are right-wing parties that are a factor in many European countries. So far, however, they are not in anything approaching a majority this is what we are all going to watch unfold in the next few years and months. And the first test of our belief or not belief in European unity will indeed be the voters of Britain deciding whether yeah. they want to stay or leave the
1: European Union but alison the the new year's eve assaults in in germany must have affected hugely attitudes of, of particularly german speakers like like austria um, and in austria itself crimes committed rapes and crimes committed by by new migrants must strike a code. I mean, I raised the point yesterday that if, if we said uh, in the New York Times or on news talk here on the radio that women should have no rights or that gays should be executed. Quite rightly, we'd be drummed out of business. But on a on a daily basis, that's what occurs in Saudi Arabia and other Islamic countries. So it's not surprising that people who are brought up in countries that have disregard the rights of women are going to be pretty comfortable carrying on as they did in New Year's Eve.
2: Yeah, I I mean, I think the New Year's Eve assault. It remains honestly unclear exactly who was involved. But it appears to have been people of, from northern Africa and from Arab countries. It's a little bit of a mystery, honestly. Why? Where were the German men, we ask ourselves? Um, but clearly, th- this was the example of a culture clash for which the policing that Cologne had arranged in advance for New Year's Eve was utterly un- inadequate. And the police appear not to have responded to the changed situation very um, but but austria
1: also has had crimes of rape and gang rape um by recent migrants also which must have helped the case of the of the right wing uh, freedom party
2: i think it definitely did because these have been cases have been covered very heavily by the tabloid press in austria i went last week to see one now 72-year-old woman who was 71 when she was raped by an Afghan last September near her home. And really, this poor woman is now, I would say, a shell of her former self. At the same time, these things tend to get very political. Last Sunday morning in Austria, a man had, run, uh, had gone and got a gun and run amok at a rock festival. He killed two people, he injured 10 people, and it emerged later that he was a known neo-Nazi, had a history of disturbance. Somehow he was able to get hold of a gun. And this case was, I mean, quite understandably with the presidential election drama, not the number one news. But one really does have to ask, you know, in some cases, why certain cases are played up. What sentiment are we trying to feed here?
1: All true, but that, that Europe, the Europe of the twentieth century, from the very beginning of that twentieth century, across Europe, because Europe itself is such a desperate place, because it had not just in Germany, um, but it had huge Jewish populations, it all kinds, and then you had uh, countries that were col- colonial countries like like Belgium and Germany and others. It it it's understandable that their politics would always be more polarized, perhaps, than your country, America, or my my country, Ireland.
2: Maybe. I, I mean, I think, obviously, Europe's history is very tangled, and we are seeing now that the dream that had been propagated for some years of peace and prosperity is fraying slightly at the edges. But for the moment, I rest with the view that whilst the right is on the march and we have to watch out for any sort of infringements of what we have come to regard as natural freedoms, um, it's still a, a danger that hasn't Yet eaten its way in into Europe's very institutions, or the institutions in each European nation.
1: All right, well we'll wait and see, Alison. I'm not as we sanguine will. as you are. I have to confess. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alison Smell from the New York Times, where she is, of course, Berlin bureau chief. We're going. We're going to the White House in a minute. But there's some news on uh, American airport security. German Shannon said no right wing party. And George? Of course there is, Fina Gael. And uh, uh, Bill says it's a little glib to talk about European sensitivity to migrant crime when the, about the sexual assaults against German women over New Year's Eve. We did that. And uh, Kevin Moore is interesting in that the right-wing candidate was ahead until the postal vote was counted. Who counted the postal votes, he says. I think you're a bit paranoid, Gavin. I'm sorry.
0: The right hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander seven-seater automatic with 40 paddle shifters for super-smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie
1: Yesterday, uh, we spent a long time uh, talking about Dublin's gangland war, and I raised the issue about the people, um, in the areas, the effect on them. Well, we're now hearing about uh, the effect on children in inner city Dublin and the schools. And some schools in Dublin's north side have drafted in psychologists to advise teachers on how to support the children. Stephanie Regan is a trauma psychotherapist and mental health activist. She joins me now in the studio. Stephanie, welcome to the programme. Thank you, George. Um, Would children be that affected, in your opinion? And I mean, as a a watcher, uh, do you think that's happening? Uh,
3: Yes, I think you'd you'd have to be just as mindful of children as you would be of adults and perhaps even a little more so because um, they don't understand what's going on and they're reliant, of course, upon how adults are going to react. So it's not only what they see, you want them also to, you know, you're going to be mindful and careful about how they're interpreting what they're seeing. And, yeah, they, they need support. And the kind of support that has been, as I can pick up now, has been set up would come from the, um, the national agency, the Educational Psychological Service. And that is, uh, that's set up especially to have these kind of psychological backup in place for national schools, secondary schools. So the psychologists who are sent in there, they would know what to expect.
1: But, um, like, when, when I was a kid... And all kids, all kids play cowboys and Indians. Mm -hmm. And you shot Indians, but but you never ever met an Indian. And more importantly, you know, you never pulled the trigger, obviously. Uh, You went to war films, but but the war seemed like a long way away because it was only in a movie theater. Mm -hmm. Um, For these children, presumably, they don't actually see the shooting, but presumably they're kids who could say it happened around the corner for me. Yeah. Well, and how traumatic is that? Now, in, given the child hasn't seen it, the child hasn't heard the, you know, the bang, mm. but knows that around the corner somebody was shot. How does that affect the child?
3: How does it affect the child? I think, it, I think the effect would come in a few ways. The effect, you don't have to be there to see it to pick it up. You could pick it up through your parents and through the chit-chat and the kind of talk that's going on at home about it. Maybe your mother is afraid. And that fear will come down. The other thing then is in school, it's where normality, how normality is shifted for them. You know, um, in school, it's how it is dealt with. So they're very right to bring in psychologists into school and try and help. Two things they'll be trying to do. They'll be trying to make sure that teachers understand what's going on for the kids. They will also be trying to make sure they have a link made with the teachers and the children so that if any child, remember not all children are equal and not all children are equally resilient. So you're going to have some kids in there who already Stressed, vulnerable little kids who've maybe had a, a difficult time, or a recent death, or a recent, maybe a recent experience of violence themselves. So it depends. You know, you're not, you're not, you're not operating on a, on an absolutely even playing field. This was one
1: of the things they worried about in Northern Ireland over a 30-year period. They mm. worried, like, how would that generation of children? how would how they would become they? then once they became adults mm. i mean yes we're trying to help children in schools but the manifestation i mean you talk about it, it mightn't happen immediately but the manifestation might also take a decade or more no
3: no no, I wouldn't really think really? so, to be straight. Um, I think it's, it's much more likely to be. It's very like I spoke to you, remember, around the, re, uh, the, the time of the Regency uh, awfulness. Yeah. And um, if we it's, it's really quite similar to what happens with adults, it's not very different, except the children are a wee bit more vulnerable and within our care, you know, but it really is that they, they, it's a, the matter of who feels not safe anymore, You know, if people don't feel safe, if they feel the simple sense of safety that we carry as we sit here talking, um, as we walk home from work, you know, it's when that's breached and changed utterly. That's very disconcerting. And children will pick that up because they're not going home now on the bike or they're not going home on their own. And parents are saying, don't walk on your own. You're not to come home without me, you know, and and getting and they can children. Children pick up and absorb the tension. All right, but
1: what about, uh, like, you know, you're the expert, you're the trauma psychotherapist, mm-hmm. but uh, Stephanie Regan. But um, what about this thing to read all the time, that children are much more resilient than we give them credit for?
3: Well, kids are resilient, and what kid? Yeah, but but it doesn't mean that you know we're all resilient. But the reality is that these events have a huge potential impact. We're not saying every child is going to be affected; they have a potential for impact. And in the same way as if we all sat here in this in this room, and you look at the people outside, if, if, if a gunman walked in here and, 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 and you saw a gun or people, people saw a gun or began to shoot or even not to shoot, there will be a whole range of people here who will be affected in a very different way. And you might feel somewhat less affected because you're secure in here and maybe you won't have even seen him. So it's, it's a whole range of effects All right, that but can it, happen. What
1: about the problem that... Very often, the person most affected speaks less. In other words, one of the the things that face people like you who work in, in, in the profession is actually trying to get somebody to talk about it. Isn't that yeah. Something?
3: Well, one of the first things is often that people withdraw a little bit. But I mean, if you were talking about children, what you would what you'd be looking out for? You'd be looking out for kids who are, you know, suddenly perhaps not sleeping well is always a big thing with kids. Not eating because sometimes children seem to 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 transfer it into their physical selves very quickly. Uh, kids who are tearful, kids who are clingy, ki- kids who are who, who won't um, won't go to school, don't want to go out. Like, there's a few little little markers there that you would say, well, there's a child who's really absorbing this.
1: But they're bringing in psychologists into the school. With the best will in the world Mm. it is a part-time solution and a teacher who isn't trained in this area is still the first port to call for the child. Nothing wrong with
3: that. There's nothing wrong with that. No, absolutely. I think what's very well proven is that 70% of what people need after an event like this is in the realm of support. Proper support, proper acknowledgement that something very difficult has happened and you might need a little extra support. So there's a kind of a, a way really of just establishing a corral of, of kind of support for the children and also for the teachers. So that those teachers feel, I can, if I see something, that's, if I'm a teacher and I see a child that's very upset, I need to know what I can do here. And I need to know what I'm dealing with because she's not just dealing with teaching. She's dealing, uh, she or he is now dealing with the emotional fallout from a critical event. And once she has some, she or he has some parameters for that, she will be better able to respond. And she herself then is supported. So you see, it's a whole, it's a layered effect of support. And we often call it like in the work, as you know, that I do, it's it's kind of managing the emotional fallout. We're not saying everybody's going to be affected. We're just saying some. In broad terms, you're often looking at two out of ten. Would, right. But everybody needs some sure, support. it takes a lot. It is quite a lot. And it's not really about resilience. It's no. just At that... six
1: in the class.
3: Yeah, well, d- yes indeed. It, and no, it I, may be lots more. But remember, the, 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 the trauma didn't happen in school. Right yeah. here. We're just ma- They're just trying to manage the children. I'd actually be, I'd be thinking also of the broader community. Like that is, they are the people, the grandparents who really know what this is about. I mean, children only know that there's guards on the street and what are they doing there you know. Um, okay. But but uh, think of All the right. grandparents. They're considerably, I think, more able to understand the, the risks. Right.
1: I have a text from Kane Galway, which is an interesting point. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm from the Falls of Belfast and grew up through the troubles, and it does affect you. And also, what about children in Gaza? Well, yeah, the con- conversation will continue. My guest was the trauma psychotherapist, and, and importantly, activist for mental health is Stephanie Regan.
0: The right hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander seven-seater automatic
1: with sporty paddle shifters for super-smooth gear changes at your fingertips. Mitsubishimotors.ie Shane Coleman still bearing the skies of yesterday's discussion on criminality in Dublin. Uh, you're on a lighter topic today, or is it lighter? Oh, well, I don't know if it's lighter. It's...
4: Um it's a little surreal, perhaps. Basically, what tomorrow, Enda Kenny will finally announce his 12 nominees to the Shannet.
1: Hold well now. I, this is important to me. I am hoping for a <laughs> Is it too late? If I haven't heard now, do you think it's too late? Not necessarily. I'd be an obvious choice, I have to say. If the t is listening, I think I'd be an obvious choice. You,
4: you like, have um, you have flagged your availability in the past.
1: I, I, Some would listen. say <laughs>
4: had every available opportunity.
1: <laughs> so much so, actually, <laughs> flogged into Bertie Ahern. <laughs> so frantic am I to become a son I think of you
4: were him. you were barking up the wrong tree with Bertie Ahern, were you not? <laughs> you yes. should have gone for a bluer tree than a greener tree. I would have thought. No.
1: Yeah. Anyway. You don't think this time it's going to work out? You never know. You never know. Birthday, belated birthday gift from t It would
4: be nice, wouldn't it? Yeah. It is the, I mean, it is the plummest gig. It's the one I, You I, wanted to. Yeah, at some point. Yeah. Now, I'm not holding out any great hope for it, but it's a, uh, it's a bit of a sinecure. It really is. Well, uh, explain first of all, before
1: we think who might get the sinecure, what's the sinecure?
4: Well, you you get you are one of the Taoiseach's 12 nominees. There are 60 senators, but the Taoiseach, in a bid, I suppose, to ensure that the government will retain yeah, a majority. Now, it won't happen on this time, even with the 12, because of the uh, the, the fragmented right. nature of, of the Oireachtas. But the Taoiseach has it in his gift to appoint uh, 12 nominations. Now, it generally, it's generally uh, party activists, people who've lost out in an election, Is people with Yeah, it tends I'm to be. Julian
1: Gillian Van Turnout, for instance. Well, last
4: time around, Ender Kenny went a different John route. John Crown. Yeah, and, um,. Uh, no, John Crane was elected, oh, uh, Was elected, so, but he did go That's a different route. Yeah, yeah and uh, I'm not so sure it worked out out that well for him, because the number of people who he <laughs> selected didn't end
1: up voting with the government. Well, like Van as a real example.
4: Yeah, well, there was, yeah, there was a number of examples. but Well, uh,
1: so and you have a car park, you have a smashing restaurant, you nice get, bar. You get paid,
4: it's like, it's, uh, you get, I think it's about 60,000 euros a year. But it, look, it is effectively a part-time gig. Uh, Can you have about, a job as well? Well, yeah, I think you can. I don't
1: think it could be a broadcaster, though it would be tricky
4: yeah. I think it would be a little bit tricky to be a broadcaster yeah, but
1: Shane Ross was writing in the Sunday Independent
4: Shane Ross is still writing in the Sunday Independent <laughs> and he's a government minister so uh, Shane Ross rewrites the rule books all the time alright okay well let's anyway, to look the he, he
1: is going the 12? he's you going know. to look he's
4: I, I won't look he's going to go with the, the party uh, people who lost out on seats James, like Riley? So, um, James Reilly James Riley will get one Michelle Mulhern will get one Anne-Marie Dermody will get oh, one no. Eddie Coffey will get one uh, Frank Fee Fion- and we'll probably get one uh, Tom Hayes perhaps Anya Collins Ray Butler the list goes on I thought it'd be much more interesting though George if we looked at who should get them right now these are the ones that Andy Kenny will not pick right. but I think would make a real difference George
1: Hook is my first choice right okay number two <laughs> <laughs> George Hook was my first choice honestly so yeah oh thanks very much that's almost as good as that's almost as good as Enda asking me yeah. Uh, well, I, look, you've done the state some service. I think right. it's fair okay. to say. Two.
4: And, okay, two. I decided to focus on, I thought, the three areas. Look, this is a government that's not going to be there for that long. I think it's fair to say. And it's a government that has, it's in a perilous state. So I think it should focus on two or three big issues and try and get results in those issues. So with that in mind, it's with that in mind that I picked uh, my five. Okay. Um. The first one, health is a big issue. Now, we're hearing lots of talk about, you know, a 10 year plan for health cross party agreement. All right. I think you need somebody in there who is, who has a knowledge of business, who's a knowledge of the health service, who can lead this and who is non political. All right. Okay. Shoot. Come on. You can't be hanging like that. Jerry this. Robinson, the oh, yeah. former right. boss of Granada, who also has knowledge of health because of his brilliant programme ten years ago Can Jerry Robinson fix the NHS when he went into a hospital yeah. and okay it was different it was artificial he had cameras on everybody so everybody had to behave themselves but he's a brilliant businessman one of the most yep. successful yeah. businessmen I've, in I've Britain. met him on the programme and okay. I, I think he would do a great job okay. and, and ch- have him as a chair of the health committee right. as well okay second my second big area I think is the property market uh, the, we've got problems with lack of supply of housing we've got the, the rental right. market social okay. housing and all that so I think look, again let's go for someone who's an expert in this field who is non-political I have two choices I, I'm kind of open to, to either of them one is Dan O'Brien the uh, economist oh, who yeah. I just think is is the most sensible person writing about economics right. every time Dan I O'Brien read piece or Lorcan Sir the um, the, the DIT property, okay. expert. but if you
1: had if you had Dan O'Brien, George Hook, and and Robinson, like we'd all be in agreement. So you're getting you're getting a a strong kind of thing. I, who I, look,
4: I think given on on balance that I think this if if we are focusing on heading up a committee that's going to actually come up with solutions to yeah. the house and, and build cross party yeah. consensus. By the
1: way, what committee would I be chairman of? Uh,
4: I think you would just get a, a nice seat in the yeah. back benches. All
1: right, okay. Uh,
4: on. So I think Lorcan Sir would be my choice. For
1: Ahead of Dan
4: just uh, Because specifically okay, right. of the, of the okay. need.
1: Now, the other big
4: thing is uh, I, a lot of our problems, I think, stem in this country and particularly in, in the property sector is an over-focus on Dublin. Now... There is too much concentration in to Dublin. Too many people. Uh, we have too much higher percentage of the population living here. Now, I don't agree with the independents who think, you know, we should have an industry. Apparently, it's
1: eleven nominations, not twelve. 11. Dan Boyle said. Sorry, it is eleven. Yeah, it is. Dan yeah. Boyle sent me a tweet.
4: Yeah. Um, I don't agree with the independents who say we should have an advanced factory in every uh, in every parish in the country, and we should build a, a rail line the whole way down the west coast, which we know nobody's right, rural No, but w- what I think we need to do is build an alternative to Dublin, an alternative city, and a proper city. Cork, to you Toronto have Dublin. it. You don't need. Well, to it can build be. It, you don't have it in Cork. That's the problem. The All population in right, okay. Cork is so. Sufficient.
1: Which Cork person are you picking? Apart I'm about from I'm picking me. a
4: Limerick person actually. Are oh, you kidding me? Who?
1: Did you did you read?
4: John Moran, the former Sec General of the Department of Finance. I'm
1: certainly not going to. I mean, I might actually I, like, resign myself. Sorry, I,
4: I'm actually... I'm doing the appointments, not you here, so you, you, oh, you just have to listen. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to agree. <laughs> okay. The, oh. John Moran wrote a piece two weeks ago in the Sunday Independent, and for me, it was like... I read it and went, at last, somebody is... He, now, he... It doesn't to me it 's irrelevant whether it 's Limerick or Cork. You can have that argument later on, but he put the argument forward for an alternative big, proper metropolis, a rival to dublin okay. Okay. I, so I, my argument at, uh, John Moran, this isn't some... Okay. This is a guy with a lot of experience. He probably wants in the Gary Owen
1: to represent Munster in the, in the European Championship. I don't championship think rugby really comes into oh, it I don't mean. think it's really yeah. the most important All thing. Right. So my, like my Frank Hogan in Limerick, in rugby, is a bit like John Moran. You know, he thinks that Gary Owen should actually his, be Ireland.
4: I, I don't think it matters that he's putting forward Limerick. I, I think I that what, what matters I is... Do. What matters is he's saying we need to think big... We okay. need to come up with something radical, a radical alternative, and focus everything on okay. one city. Look, you can even do it Limerick and Cork, but okay. I think we need to do that, and I, I think agree. he should be the guy charged with doing that. Okay, my, uh, if you, given I've, I've graciously given you a, yeah, right. a, a nomination, my final choice is one of two women, whichever of these two are available, I think both would be fantastic. One is Catherine Day, the former... Sec- Secretary-General of the European Commission, extraordinary experience uh, in Europe, worked for countless uh, commissioners, headed up, basically was the most senior civil servant uh, in Brussels. Uh, My other choice is Samantha Power, the uh, US ambassador to the UN, Irish woman. I'm presuming she's going to be out of a job when uh, when Barack Obama...
1: Whoever gets elected.
4: Yeah, Uh, so... Either of those, I think, would be fantastic right. and would add greatly to the uh, the strength of the Senate.
1: Right. Well, uh, I like it's amazing you can't get a committee for me. I would be on two. I would be chairing two committees because of my work rate. One would be the uh, mass immigration. ...migration into Ireland, and then the other one will be the Transport Committee, looking at the proliferation of cyclists on our streets and how we can fix it. I think yeah. Ender's making a mistake by not asking me. Well, maybe he will ask you. I mean, maybe you will get to call...
4: Maybe he's trying to ring you literally As As we speak As as we speak You could also You could also push your argument for internment Which you were making on the programme yesterday Which I I see you're now sharing with with one uh, Ivan Yates Who was calling for the same thing in the Irish Independent Was he? Yeah
3: Oh,
0: the does, that does that RV make ne- you
4: reconsider? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I thought it might. The right hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander seven-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. Mitsubishimotors.ie
1: Joined now by Director of External Affairs at London Science Museum, Roger Highfield, to discuss the most interesting topic of the history of the toilet. What <laughs> brought this <laughs> upon you? <sighs>
0: afternoon george
1: are we Are we celebrating its centenary or something well there's a great
0: article in the journal Nature about the uh, history of the toilet and really just pointing out that archaeologists um tended to sort of avoid them maybe for quite natural reasons or maybe a hundred years ago thought they were a bit of a distasteful thing to study, but now they 're realizing that they can get all sorts of insights into diseases that affected populations, and in fact, if you look at the way the Romans used their ancient loos, they were throwing food waste and scraps down them as well, so you can actually tell a lot about what people eat, and in fact, most interestingly, um, you can find out what quite poor people ate as well. So, you know, we're opening up a whole new exciting world by studying ancient toilets,
1: Yeah, but but hold on, you're not seriously suggesting there are archaeologists digging in the ground to find the remnants of what went down the loo, no?
0: Yeah, they are, they are, (laughs) they're absolutely fascinated by it, because they, you know, they didn't have um, S-bends and things like that. In fact, the Romans apparently were quite um, uneasy about their loos, and probably because, you know, they were... Uh, surrounded by flies and in fact when they looked at in, in some loo's left in Herculaneum uh, they found um, all sorts of remains of flies and fly pupae and so on so it must have been a pretty unpleasant uh, near these these old loo's obviously you'd have rats and mice right, as well okay. there's even a reference to an octopus crawling, crawling <laughs> its way up one of these things although I'm not sure I believe that one
1: well, now the other thing of course it, it, it probably Recent by your standards, seen as you're in sort of uh, B.C. B- 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 times, but the, the 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 inventor of the actual flush toilet that we are no know, know was actually Thomas Crapper, and therefore the name well lived that- forevermore.
0: That's uh, that's according to the popular oh. story, and in we fact, don't. we have got some interesting bits and pieces of um, of Lou history. I think it's it's better to say he didn't actually invent the flush toilet, because you know you can find, for example, in Orkney there are some um, toilets that date back to about 3000 BC and they've got a, dr- a drain running beneath them and a cubicle over a drain. So, you know, you've, you've had for okay. a long time the idea of using water, but, but he definitely did a lot to increase the popularity of the toilet and, and also invented things like the bullcock. So, you know, he's definitely an important player, but not as important as some people think.
1: All right. But if you look at particularly medieval London, um, which was a pretty dirty place by all accounts, this was because, of course, um, houses didn't have bathrooms, so they used chamber pots, and they'd sort of just toss them out the window uh, into the streets. And it made London streets in medieval times a pretty dodgy place to walk, I would have thought.
0: You're you're absolutely right, and it's actually particularly shocking because uh, when you look at the history of the toilet, you find that toilets and sewers really date back um, a long, long time ago—third millennium BC. In fact, I've seen one scholar refer that refer to that as the age of cleanliness. And if you go to um, there's a one particular archaeological site in Pakistan that's 2,800 BC. And you find they built lavatories into the outer walls of houses uh, with bricks and wooden seats on top. And they had chutes through which waste, you know, I mean, they could go into street drains or cesspits and things like that. So it's quite shocking. Not much progress was made in thousands of years until you got people like Crapper coming along and coming up with all those other mm. innovations.
1: But but the interesting thing um, about latrines, and, and, you know, latrines are, are are still in existence, which are simple uh, forms of toilets, but I, I do work, for instance, in Haiti, and, you know, it's one of the poorest countries in the world. It suffered enormously because of the earthquake, and we're actually building latrines there because, of course... A, the, the proper toilet facilities are a huge bulwark against disease or bad ones create disease
0: absolutely and, and, and it is, it, it, it's, it's always been separating, separating people from their own waste has always been really critical um, you know for, for dealing with disease and I think one of the interesting things is when you look at these Roman loos from a couple of uh, thousand years ago uh, and then you look at the parasite burdens, so you can actually look at the remains in these loos and see what kind of bugs and things they were carrying. Actually, the load of bugs seemed to seem to have gone up, even though um, uh, there they were they were using toilets. And I think the conclusion is the issue was not so much sanitation, but they were probably fertilizing their crops with human waste. Yuck! Which is why that wasn't quite working out the way it was supposed
1: to. All right, now, but stay with the Romans for a minute, because Romans are like the rest of the world was sort of, um, with the exception of Ireland, who were always pretty good. But but it's fair to say the the rest of the known world was was pretty sort of to use a, a modern day phrase was kind of third world. And then the first world was Rome and Greece now the Romans like if you go down to to bath for instance you know you've still got the remains of the Roman spas and so on so the Romans would appear to have been quite into cleanliness weren't
0: they they, they were you, you were right I mean they they were unprecedented in their adoption of toilets and around the first century BC public latrines were uh, you know very common Feature of Roman infrastructure. Uh, I'm not sure I would want to have used a Roman latrine, though. There, there's a lovely description of one where you find that there was quite a lot of graffiti outside, suggesting people had to queue up for a long time. Had very simple colour scheme, not scheme, not very elaborate decoration. So it's probably for for poor um, uh, people, and um, you had a um, a kind of uh, a lot of holes. Separated by not much distance, only half a meter, where people would squat down. So you were kind of, um, there, there wasn't much in the way of privacy. I think you were relying on your toga or your robes <laughs> to kind of cover up. And it seemed to be a pretty communal um, affair. Um, what do you think? Do you think it might catch on again today, George? <laughs>
1: the toga? <laughs> well, I have to tell you, the rugby rant the, the uh, rugby ground, the, the oldest rugby, international rugby ground in the world is Lansdowne Road in Dublin but like up to comparatively recently and I'm talking about it, in other words my lifetime I mean when I was going to rugby games in Lansdowne Road uh, uh, in my 20s you know uh, in the 19 uh, when was I 20 i got to work that out but anyway in the 60s um, the toilet facilities and football stadiums were archaic.
0: Yeah. Now, well, I must say, I went to a uh, a boarding school in the sixties, <laughs> and there were there were no uh, doors on the loose or any luxuries like that. So I yeah. guess that was that was Roman um, style. But as I say, these um, you know archaeologists are now getting. Very excited about them, uh,
1: yeah. Uh, Why? Yeah, I just have to stop you because it seems to have been the policy in Britain of the more expensive the school, the less doors they had in the toilets. Why was that? There was a direct correlation between the fees and the lack of toilet doors. <laughs>
0: I think that's one of the great mysteries that we haven't cracked
1: yet. All
0: <laughs> well, I can say I've lived through it and I'm rather glad that we, we use things like doors and have privacy again.
1: But is there a direct correlation between um the arrival of modern day toilets and reduction in disease? I mean can you can you sort of graph it as such?
0: I, I, I think I think there is um There's definite evidence, and I think the the key is to talk about separating people from their waste, because as you suggested, um, in urban, you know, certainly in London a few hundred years ago, it was a pretty, the Thames was a sort of open sewer uh, and so on. So whatever whatever sanitation measures we were doing then were not particularly adequate. But then, of course... um, you know, it was only in the mid-19th century when you got urbanization and you had the industrial, the impact of the Industrial Revolution. That's when the flush toilet became widely used. Okay. And that's when uh, it really began to have an impact. And then, of course, these flush loos were known as water closets. Um, and you, you can then see, I, th- I think, much more impact on public health.
1: Right, well, uh, a lot of reaction to the piece, uh, all aptly, all pointing out rather aptly, is a lot of crap talked on the right hook.